This is the hour of doom and bloom. That's right, friends and neighbors. Welcome to Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Podcast, a nook of normality in a nasty world, and the number one show about medical preparedness, mostly because it's the only show about medical preparedness. It's like Back to the Future, if by future you mean nursing home. <laughs> <laughs> and who am I? I'm Joe Alton, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of the award-winning survival website doomandbloom.net. And I'm Amy Alton, also known as Nurse Amy, and I'm an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. And purveyor of quality medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. She's so sharp, I'm running out of Band-Aids. Ouch! <laughs> I, would, I would never never hurt you, darling. You know that. <laughs> On this show, you're going to get the conventional medical wisdom, the unconventional medical wisdom, and if you're still awake, random thoughts by someone way too old to have thoughts. <laughs> Coherent ones, that is. Whatever it takes to get your family medically prepared for tough times, you'll hear it here. But first, you got to listen to this. All information and opinions voiced on the Survival Medicine Podcast are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. We strongly urge our audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. Or don't, smarty pants. What's a little zombie apocalypse to you? But answer me this. Who's going to keep your family safe and sound when the spy balloons come hovering? What happens if something really happens? When the hospitals are out of commission and somebody's sick or injured, who's in charge? Well, don't look at me. I'm just a piano player. I'm looking at you, friend. You can bet that when it's least expected that you're going to be elected. Not just as medic, but also as dog catcher, chief cook, bottle washer, the whole thing. So get off your duff and start learning some stuff. Why not get some medical supplies while you're at it? Amy can tell you where you can find some, I'll bet. Absolutely. Store.doomandbloom.net. I have kits from tiny ones that you can carry in your pocket to big, giant backpacks that you can use for long, long-term survival. That's right. I want to mention that the fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, greatly expanded and revised, still ranks 4.8 out of 5 on Amazon over more than 2,000 reviews and is still high on bestseller lists throughout the country. If you haven't checked out our greatly expanded new book, you're going to find the black and white version at Amazon and the color version at store.doomandbloom.net. We even have a color spiral bound version on our website. Absolutely. You know, recently a 7.8 magnitude earthquake caused massive damage and loss of life in parts of Turkey and Syria. Over 22,000 deaths are confirmed so far, with more than 60,000 people injured. This makes the earthquake even worse than the massive one that caused so much damage in Fukushima, Japan. I don't know if you remember that one. That was in 2011. We haven't had anything on that level in the United States, but you still should know, family medic, what to do in the case of one. I know and you know that hurricanes are more significant for residents of the Gulf and East Coast of the United States, but the West Coast and even some areas of the Midwest should be concerned about the possible risk of an earthquake event. Some of our most populated areas are actually near fault lines. A fault line is a fracture in the volume of base rock. This is an area where earth movement releases energy that can cause major surface disruptions. We call this movement a seismic wave. The strength of an earthquake has been historically measured using the Richter scale. The measurement from 0 to 10 or more identifies the magnitude of tremors at a certain location. Each increase of one magnitude increases the strength by a factor of 10. The highest registered earthquake was the Great Chilean Earthquake of 1960, a 9.5 on the Richter scale. Most quakes, however, are less than 2.0 and occur every day in one place or another. These are unlikely to be noticed by the average person. Now, there's a newer measurement, the Moment Magnitude Scale, which calculates each point of magnitude as releasing more than 30 times the energy of the previous one. It's considered more accurate than the Richter scale, especially for higher magnitude earthquakes. 
So a moment magnitude 7 quake is 30 times as powerful than a magnitude 6. If the energy is released offshore, a tsunami or tidal wave may be generated. In Fukushima, Japan, a very powerful offshore earthquake, an 8.9 magnitude, and tsunami wreaked havoc in 2011, causing major damage, loss of life, and meltdowns in local nuclear reactors. All told, there have been hundreds of thousands of people killed by earthquakes in the last, well, 20 years or so, including the 2010 earthquake in Haiti, which theoretically took the lives of almost 300,000 people, which is, to me, pretty incredible because I don't remember hearing that much about it way back then. If they're major, earthquakes are especially dangerous due to their unpredictability. There's usually little notice given beforehand. That means that you should make sure that every member of your family knows what to do no matter where they are when an earthquake occurs. That's important because unless it happens in the dead of night, it's unlikely you're all going to be in the house together. Planning ahead will give you the best chance of gathering your people together and making the best of a bad situation. Now, what do you need to be actually prepared for earthquakes? These are some of the things that I think are very important. Non-perishable foods and water, of course, clean water, drinkable water, power sources, alternative shelters. You might need tents if the buildings that you live in are unstable. Of course, you'll need medical items. You'll need clothing appropriate to the weather you're in. Uh, fire extinguishers in case there's a fire in the building, uh, a means of communication, you need to have money and you should probably have cash because you can't depend on credit or debit cards if the power's down, and individual tools like an adjustable wrench so you can turn off your gas and water. You need to figure out where you're going to meet in the event of tremors. What's the school system's plan for earthquakes? Will you be able to find your kids? I mean, that I think is a pretty important question. If you're in an earthquake zone, you should make sure that they can easily reach you and know what to do. It would be appropriate to always get a get home bag put together at work or in the car. Some food, liquids, a pair of sturdy, comfortable shoes are useful items to have available in case you have to make it home by foot due to road damage. Once you're home, it's especially important to know where your gas, electric, and water main shutoffs are. Make sure that everyone has an idea of how to turn them off if there's a leak or an electrical short. Know where the nearest medical facility is, but be aware that you might be on your own. Medical responders are going to be overwhelmed, may not get to you quickly or at all. Aren't you glad you were medically prepared? Look around your house for fixtures like chandeliers and bookcases that might not be stable enough to withstand an earthquake. Flat screen TVs, especially large ones, could easily be toppled by moderate tremors. Be sure to check out kitchen and pantry shelves and the stability of anything that might be hanging over, let's say, the headboard of your bed like a work of art. So what should you do when the tremors start? If you're indoors, you need to get under a table, desk, or something else solid and hold on. If cover isn't available, you should stand against an inside wall. Don't try to use elevators. They might malfunction. You should stay clear of windows, shelves, and kitchen areas. While the building's shaking, don't try to run out. You could easily fall downstairs or get hit by falling debris. That's going to be a hard thing to honestly stop from doing, but that's indeed the general recommendation. We had always thought that you should stand in the doorway because of the frame's sturdiness, but it turns out that in modern homes, doorways apparently aren't any more solid than any other part of the structure. Now, once the initial tremors are over, go outside. Once there, stay as far out in the open as you possibly can, away from power lines, chimneys, or anything else that could possibly fall on top of you. You might be in your automobile when the earthquake hits. Now, if that's the case, get out of traffic as soon as possible. Other drivers are likely to be less level-headed than you are. Don't stop your car under bridges, trees, overpasses, power lines, or light posts. Stay in your vehicle while the tremors are active. After the event, one thing you should be concerned about is gas leaks. Make sure you don't use your camp stoves, lighters, or even matches until you're certain that all is clear. 
Even a match can ignite a spark that could lead to an explosion. If you turn the gas off, you might consider letting the utility company turn it back on. Now, don't count on telephone service after a natural disaster. Telephone companies only have enough lines to deal with about 20% of total call volume at any one time. It's likely all lines will be occupied. Interestingly enough, this doesn't seem to apply to text. You'll have a better chance to communicate by texting than by voice due to the wavelength used. This used to be cutting-edge advice, by the way, but now everybody texts. If you have old folks who aren't savvy about texting, well, take a moment to teach them. It's not rocket science. And now for something you'll really enjoy. Hey, Nurse Amy here. I'm going to talk about allergies today. Um, mostly it's about hay fever, things that cause you to be itchy and scratchy and sneezy. And no, those are not names of the seven dwarfs. <laughs> but in fact, they're allergy symptoms that can leave you, well, ha ha ha, grumpy. <laughs> um, I get this from a book that I love to read and I use for resources when uh, Dr. Bones and I need some help. It's a Reader's Digest book. And it's actually called um, 1801 or 1801 Home Remedies, Trustworthy Treatments for Everyday Health Problems. And uh, supposedly it's written from doctors, nurses, pharmacists, herbalists, and real-life experts. So this section on allergies first discusses natural antihistamines. And the first one they talk about is nettle. And it's interesting because there are some people that are actually allergic to nettle, but it does work, they say, <laughs> as a natural antihistamine. In fact, there's some famous neuropathic doctor, uh, Andrew Wheel, who reportedly takes it for his allergies. You'll find capsules of the freeze-dried leaf in health food stores. Take 500 milligrams three times a day of those capsules. Ginkgo... Bilobo. This is, wow, we've heard about this for years, from memory, right? You don't want to get that old brain. You want to keep your mind moving around. Um, some memory boosting properties, supposedly. But it can also be an effective allergy fighter. It contains substances which can stop certain allergy-triggering chemicals in their attacks. And you're supposed to take between 60 and 240 milligrams a day. Quercetin is one of the medications that Dr. Bones and I was taking, and we still do, to help prevent COVID. It's supposed to be a really good antiviral. So that's something that you can actually take for um, allergies. And it's that's interesting because I didn't know that myself. It inhibits the release of histamine. And you can take, just like we take normally, 500 milligram capsules twice a day. You can also take 250 if you don't have terrible allergies. And if you're already taking nettle, don't also take this because nettle also contains the same uh, quercetin. Fatty acids like omega-3 can help counter inflammatory responses in the body, such as those triggered by allergies. Fish is really good. That's a great source of omega-3s. It's not expensive capsules. You can get it naturally. And of course, it's got all kinds of other nutrients in good fish. You want to try things like salmon and mackerel. Uh, those are really good sources for omega-3. And if you prefer the idea of fish oil capsules, try taking 3,000 milligrams a day. Flax seeds are another source of 
omega-3 fatty acids. You can take one tablespoon of flaxseed oil a day. You can add it to a glass of juice or bend it, blend it into a smoothie, but beware of heating it. You don't want to do that. You can soothe your itchy, red, swollen eyes, and boy, do I remember having those, with a damp, cool washcloth. That works two ways. One, it's soothing because of the coolness, but also if you do have some floating allergens in there, some pollen that's gotten in there, that can help to remove that because you may also be reacting to the um, contact of these allergens and also things like pet dander. I know we have a bird and when she flaps her wings around, her dander goes flying. I've got feathers and, and bird dander and it's everywhere. And there have been times when I've had terrible allergic reactions because of it. So just the act of removing what may be in contact with your eye might make it feel better. But again, the soothing, cool washcloth helps with the itchy eyes. There's something over the counter called Zadador. And that, again, over the counter, you don't have to worry about getting a prescription. It really has helped Joe and I with itchy eyes and it's not expensive and it's super easy to get. Saline nose sprays are a time-tested mucus buster and also help to keep your nasal passages moisturized. And also, thinking again about flushing. If you have contact with dander in your nose and you're just constantly reacting to it, flushing it out, getting a nose spray. You can even use a neti pot, which is an interesting thing. It looks like a tiny teapot. But always use sterile, boiled solution. You don't want to use tap water. And certainly you don't want to use any fluids that are unsafe. So there are special ways that you're going to have to prepare it. You can buy those solutions that are sterile for that. But that's a, a cleansing. So you use the neti pot, you use the, the teapot um, spout, and you're going to be pouring that into one nostril. You lean your head to the side, it comes out, it actually comes out through your mouth. It's kind of messy. It can also flow out of your other nostril, depending on how your head is tilted. But those can be really uncomfortable for certain people. The pressure's too much. Uh, I know I used it once and I did feel like it got into my, my ears. So, you know, it just depends on your, your comfort level with that. They do usually recommend a little bit of salt in those solutions, again, if you don't buy the, the pre-made sterile solution that you're using for those. They also have bulb syringes. So instead of using the neti pot, you can use a little bulb syringe. But always lean over the sink because the water is going to be coming out. And always use a little bit of salt and always make sure that the water is sterile. If you've got problems with pollen and you know things are flowering, and this is just your season for allergies. Most people get to know their bodies, you know, year after year. If you live in the same environment. If you're moving around, that's, it's kind of hard to say, gee, which pollen am I going to react to this time? But if you know when you're going to have these issues, try to stay indoors if it's possible. I know after three years of a pandemic, nobody wants to hear to stay indoors. But you can stay inside just during the pollen attack with the windows closed and the air conditioning turned on because that's going to circulate the air inside 
especially in the early evening when the pollen counts hit their peak. Take shelter inside before thunderstorms, which I think is super interesting. And about three hours afterwards, apparently storms are preceded by high humidity, which makes the pollen granules burst and release open, starting their irritating search for your nose and your mouth. Um, when, you when you go out, wear a wraparound sunglasses to keep the pollen off of your eyes. And, you know, I know we're totally over and don't ever want to put a face mask on. But if you're somebody that seriously suffers and not just while you're outside, but for hours or days later, you may consider wearing a mask during this allergy season. And if people say, hey, wait a minute, wearing a mask. I have allergies. I'm not scared of anything. I just have allergies. I don't want to start sneezing. Thank you very much. That's your body and you can protect it. You can also protect yourself with something called a pollen trap. And it's really simple. You just take a little bit of petroleum jelly and you smear it under your nose. The idea is that when you're inhaling through your nose, that the small pieces of pollen or pet dander are going to get stuck on the petroleum jelly or Vaseline that's sitting underneath your nose. Oh, you can also use A&D ointment. That would be an, a good alternative too. But the that's going to get stuck there. Instead of going straight up into your nose and causing, you know, itching and sneezing and all the terrible things that go along with allergy attacks. When you're in a car, keep the windows closed again during allergy season for you. Turn on the air, condition, air conditioning to filter out the pollen and choose recirculate on the car system so you don't bring in fresh air. You just use the air that's in the car that's already been filtered because you don't want to keep adding to the pollen count inside your car. Believe it or not, people with allergies, and again, during allergy season, if you know when that is, should wash your hair before you go to bed. What you're doing is during the day, your hair is like a dust mop. I know that sounds gross, but it's attracting all the pollen and the pet dander and all this stuff is getting in your hair. And what happens when you go to bed? Your hair lets go of it, and then you turn your head into the pillow, and it, you breathe that right in. So you have not helped yourself by going to bed without washing your hair. I'd say at a minimum, at least brush your hair really well. Maybe use a, some kind of spritz in your hair just to help clean it, I guess, if you can't wash it. Do that. But trying to protect yourself, so some of the things that are really common allergens are like dust mites. So we can kill these things or at least control the amount of them around us. Try to get rid of carpets. Hard floors are better. This is one of the reasons why my mom just would not let us have carpet when I was growing up because of my allergies. So we had hard floors, whether it was wood uh, linoleum, tile, we even had uh, something called Chattahoochee, and we just had hard floors. I mean, they were cold, but at least there was an allergen sitting in the carpet ready to be released when somebody walked over them. Don't vacuum. If you use a regular vacuum without a HEPA filter, don't vacuum around somebody who has allergies. You're just stirring that stuff up. 
Another thing you shouldn't do is dust when somebody's in the room who's got allergies. Because, again, you're just stirring it up. I know you think you're getting it, catching it on these dust traps that we're supposed to use to wipe all these surfaces. But, honestly, if you could see through the light, you know, you had that sunshine coming through the window and you could see. It's getting some of it, but it's not getting all of it. It's another thing. My mother would never clean a room if I was inside of it because she knew it stirred up the dust. Bad things. Fans. The top of fans. Those are dust catchers. Keep them clean. I always use a damp cloth to clean those. I don't use any of those dust, dusty things, the dry ones, because I don't care if they say it catches it. It doesn't really. Use a damp cloth. You don't want to stir up dust. So if you've got somebody in the household that has allergies, use damp um, fiber cloths or washcloths, whatever you want, to clean so you're not just moving the dust around you want to pick it up you want to get rid of it cover your mattresses I have always had dust mite covers on the mattresses on the box springs and on every single pillow in my house so there is not a place at least on my beds or my pillows that dust mite dust mites can hang out you want to regularly change your sheets at least once a week. Twice a week is better with someone with allergies. Your comforter. Make sure you're getting that comforter either into a washing machine regularly or even more simple is put it in the dryer. Put it on for 45 minutes or 30 minutes. Throw that around. It fluffs it up. It gives us some heat. It might kill some dust mites if there's dust mites on there. But... And then some of these dryers nowadays have these uh, settings that you can do, you know, a sterilize, a fresh. So it steams it. Steam cleans it, and that's going to be really helpful too. Going back to uh, vacuuming, if you are going to vacuum and you know someone has allergies or you have them, get a HEPA filter on a vacuum. I know they're probably a little more expensive, but just get one that's going to clean the air that's shooting out of what you're vacuuming you don't want the dust to go through the vacuum cleaner and then straight out the top or the back and then be moving around you just want to keep everything settled um clutter clutter and curtains i would say are two really big dust collectors so you have stuff sitting all over your tables your countertops you have lots of books you have knickknacks everywhere, and you have curtains. Those are all big dust collectors. Either get rid of most of your stuff that's sitting on the counters, put it away, get a curio cabinet, put it behind glass, so if it did catch dust, it's not going to float around on you. Um, and regularly wash those drapes, just like you're doing your comforters. Do you want to keep everything as clean, as clean, as clean as possible? Decreasing humidity helps. Um, it's nearly impossible for me unless you buy a dehumidifier. I think the lowest I can really get it with my air conditioning is about 56%, and I'm sure we run 80 to 100% outside here in South Florida practically year-round. So that's a little harder for us, but maybe not for people who live up north. Um, keep your pet out of your bedroom. This is another thing. We weren't allowed to have pets in the house. Our, my poor dog. Thank goodness we lived in Georgia and there were 
cool winters and cool springs and cool falls. Um, poor thing in the summer. But whenever we had pets, cats or dogs, nobody was allowed in the house because of my allergies. Poor things. And if you do have pets and you are going to keep them in the house, you just you have to vacuum like all the time. And you have to bathe them at least once a week. Supposedly, bathing takes 85% of pet dander off of the pet. So regular bathing is really good. Air conditioning, I mean, I keep it on down here because even when it's cool, we like, we like to have our air filtered. And so it does keep your humidity low, which discourages mold and dust mites. It filters the air. Keep your filters changed on a regular basis. A lot of people just leave their filters till some light goes off or the thing just shuts off itself once a month. Now, if you know you're in allergy season, you may consider doing that more frequently. Not because it's going to look dirty, because it may be dirty and you just don't see the small little particles. So you may consider doing that more frequently and buy a really good air conditioning filter. You might as well buy a good one if you've got allergies. And so look for things that say HEPA filter. Cleaning. You know, we talked about not moving dust around, but actually dusting. At least twice a year, try to clean all your hard surfaces with the washcloth um, using some form of a bleach solution. 5%, 10%, depends on what you're cleaning, how harmful it is. You know, you want to be gentle to your surface, surfaces, but you also want to clean them well. Clean the furniture Wipe every single thing. Even wipe inside of cabinets. Because, you know, you open those up. Things still get in there. Dust gets in there. Take, you know, everything out of your cabinets. Clean it down. Wash it down. Put everything back. Um, wipe your furniture. So you want to do this. You want to vacuum your furniture. If you have hard surfaces, you want to wipe the furniture. We talked about the dehumidifier. If you have a basement that's really damp, you may consider buying a dehumidifier for down there because you don't want to develop mold. And I think people who have basements who are in somewhat of a humid um, environment, at least par part of the year, you'll understand that it's pretty humid down there and, and sometimes it gets a little stinky and that could be mold. And mold is an issue for people who have allergies. So, you know, you want to prevent these things. You don't want to get into a whole um, allergic situation and then you got to take Benadryl and you got to you know do all these terrible things and you just feel awful it makes you really tired to allergy attacks um, we talked about the clothes dryer for the the comforter but um, you want to keep your dryer clean so make sure you're cleaning the the lint catcher I mean I do that every single time we run a load and check the dryer hose because if those get clogged up, again, you might not be pulling off as much of the lint and dust off of your clothes that you're washing or your sheets or your comforter. So you definitely want to make sure that your dryer hose is as clean as possible. One thing that I don't think I emphasized enough is using air purifiers. I have been using those in various rooms of this house Oh my goodness. And my previous residences, I would say from at least 1990 in some form or another, 
Uh, I think something that's really important that could be part of the air purifiers and you want to get the best one you can is definitely the HEPA filters, which we've been talking about, and adding UV. Now, we've had UV sterilizers inside of our air purifiers as long as I can remember, if more than 15 years. So this is not new to technology. This is not just because of COVID, although it's great because it's supposed to kill viruses and bacteria. So it's an additional uh, helper in purifying your air that it does that. But I, I do like the idea of having a UV sterilizer. So if you find something with a UV light and a HEPA filter, get the best one you can. Make sure that you were replacing the filters as recommended. Some of them have sensors. They'll give you a little red light and tell you, hey, it's time to change the filters. If you can get something that you can wash, even better. That saves money because I'll tell you what, they might not charge a whole lot of money to buy your air purifier up front, but just like a printer, your replacement cartridges for your air purifier may cost an arm and a leg or eventually over time cost an arm and a leg. So take a look at that. See if you can find something that you can wash, which is great. Or, you know, look into how much the filters really are before you purchase uh, a really good air filter. But anyway, look for something with HEPA and UV if you can. And I put them all over my house. Literally, I do not feel that you can over purify your air. There's no such thing. Sorry. So there are some of the rooms in my house that have three or four. Like our bedroom, at one point during COVID, one, two, three, four, five, six. We have six. So, yeah, we like to have fresh air because Dr. Bones and I have terrible allergies too. So it's not just about sleeping healthier. It's about being able to sleep because we can breathe. <laughs> These are just some hints. Um, there are a lot more. I'm sure you guys have them. I, if Dr. Bones puts this up on Facebook, feel free to give us some more hints about how you guys help prevent and take care of your allergies. I would love to hear them. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. The Survival Medicine Podcast is brought to you by A Plastic Bag. Plastic bags are versatile. Put your ham sandwich in it, your favorite recreational drugs, or put one over your head and see the world in an entirely different way. Paint it red, slap a biohazard sticker on it, and use it to store your leftover shipment of Pentagon anthrax. Plastic bags, available in the trillions at trash dumps everywhere. Hey guys, this is the part of the show where I discuss topics that are brought up usually by readers, listeners, and viewers of our various social media outlets. Here we go. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival website doomandbloom.net, co-author of the Book Excellence Award-winning fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook and designer of quality medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. We've talked a lot about sterilizing water to make it safe for drinking, but a few things in the news lately got me thinking about food safety, another responsibility for the family medic. The FDA announced on February 3rd that over 400 product items, including sandwiches, salads, snacks, yogurt, and wraps that were sold under various brand names have been recalled over potential contamination with the bacterium called Listeria. The products were sold by Baltimore-based Fresh Ideation Food Group between January 24th through January 30th and included breakfast muffins, croissants, wraps, and an array of fruits as well as noodle bowls and other items. 
According to the FDA's announcement, the recall products were distributed in Connecticut, the District of Columbia, Maryland, Massachusetts, New Jersey, New York, North Carolina, hmm, Pennsylvania, South Carolina, and Virginia. They were sold in retail locations, vending machines, and during travel with transportation providers, in other words, airlines and things like that. More info on all this can be found at foodsafety.gov, by the way. While this may be a relatively rare case of food contamination, outbreaks of bacteria found in food seem to be becoming more frequent. Besides highly publicized problems at restaurants like Chipotle, Safeway, Markets, Walmart, Trader Joe's, and Prepper Favorite Costco, they have also been the targets of recalls in recent times. Listeria monocytogenes is a bacterium that hospitalizes 1,600 people a year in the U.S., with about 260 deaths on average. It's a member of the family of bacteria named after a founding father of modern sterile surgery, Joseph Lister. You can find his name on various types of surgical instruments as well, including advantages actually that we have in a lot of our kits. It also causes a relatively rare bacterial disease called listeriosis, a serious infection caused by eating food contaminated with the bacteria. The disease especially affects pregnant women, newborns, toddlers, adults with weakened immune systems, and the elderly. In these folks, deaths occur from sepsis and a nervous system infection called meningitis. A person with listeriosis usually has fever, muscle aches, diarrhea, and other intestinal symptoms. It all starts in the GI tract but frequently invades different organ systems varying from patient to patient. Pregnant women infected with listeria can expect a higher incidence of miscarriage, stillbirth, premature deliveries, and newborn infections. Others, such as the very young and very old, may experience things like confusion, stiff necks, loss of coordination and balance, and even seizures. Although there are some differences in opinion, the antibiotic ampicillin is generally thought to be a drug of choice, preferably IV. Other physicians consider penicillin to be an acceptable option, as well as sulfur drugs and genomycin in people that are allergic. So how do you prevent infections with listeria and really any bacteria that causes food poisoning? Food and Drug Administration has their opinions, and here are some of their recommendations. They want you to rinse raw produce, such as fruits and vegetables, thoroughly under running water before eating, cutting, or cooking. Even if you're peeling the produce, it still should be washed first. And that's because if you touch the peel and then the peeled fruit or vegetable, it could get contaminated with the bacteria. They want you to scrub firm produce, like melons and cucumbers, with a clean produce brush. And that's a handy item that few people actually have in their supplies. Then you want to dry the produce with a clean cloth or paper towel. You should always, by the way, separate uncooked meats and poultry from vegetables, cooked foods, and ready-to-eat foods, if at all possible. The FDA recommends that you wash your hands and any knives, countertops, and cutting boards before handling and preparing uncooked foods. By the way, Listeria monocytogenes can grow in food stored in a refrigerator, so you want to have an appliance thermometer to check the temperature inside your fridge if it doesn't have one already. The refrigerator should be at 40 degrees Fahrenheit or lower, the freezer at 0 degrees Fahrenheit or lower. You want to clean up all spills in your refrigerator right away, especially juices from hot dogs, lunch meat packages, raw meat, and raw poultry. You want to also clean the inside walls and shelves of your refrigerator with hot water and liquid soap on a regular basis, then rinse them out. Now, without thoroughly cooking meats, you put yourself at risk for infection. You should be sure that all food is cooked evenly throughout. It's thought that Ebola may have started in West Africa back in 2014 from partially cooked bat meat. Each type of meat has its own recommended temperature to eliminate disease-causing organisms called pathogens. Here are safe temperatures for certain types of foods. Beef, veal, goat, lamb, and bison, and especially those that are in steak, roast, and chops, those are 145 degrees Fahrenheit. That's their internal temperature they should be at. 
with a rest time of three minutes. Now rest time is leaving the meat out before cutting it. And now when you take your roast, for example, out of the oven, the moisture that's still inside needs some time to redistribute back through the meat. If you cut it immediately, the juices run out, leaving the meat dry. By letting it rest, the moisture is reabsorbed. Another reason to give about three minutes rest time is that you want, let's say, a large piece of meat to actually continue to cook for a few minutes after you take it out of the oven. It might kill the last few bacteria. Okay, so most red meats, beef, bison, veal, goat, and lamb, 145 degrees Fahrenheit, rest time three minutes. That's if they're in the form of chops or roasts or steaks. If they're ground meat or sausage, they should be cooked up to an internal temperature of 160 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, chicken, turkey, and other poultry, breasts, legs, thighs, wings, ground poultry, giblet sausage, stuffing inside poultry should all be cooked at 165 degrees. Ham should be cooked to 145 degrees with a rest time of three minutes. Pork in the form of steaks, roasts, or chops, 145 degrees with a rest time of three minutes. Ground meat and sausage made of pork, 160 degrees. Rabbit or venison, 160 degrees also. Fish. Uh, such as salmon, tuna, tilapia, bass, cod, catfish, trout, things like that, 145 degrees, or you cook it until the flesh is no longer translucent and it separates easily with the fork. Shrimp, lobster, crab, and scallops, those kind of seafoods, cook them until the flesh is pearly white and opaque. Clams, oysters, and mussels, you should cook them until the shells open during the cooking process. You might wonder how long meats are safe to eat even if stored in the refrigerator. The USDA has firm opinions on this as well. Use pre-cooked or ready-to-eat food as soon as you can. Don't store the product in the refrigerator beyond the use-by date to have the best chance of avoiding food contamination. Follow USDA refrigerator storage time guidelines, which might surprise you by the way. For hot dogs, for example, you store the open package no longer than one week and unopened package no longer than two weeks in the refrigerator. Luncheon and deli meats, you want to store factory sealed unopened packages no longer than two weeks. Store open packages and meats sliced at a local deli no longer than three to five days in the refrigerator. Now how about leftovers? The FDA suggests dividing your leftovers into shallow containers to promote rapid even cooling. You want to cover with airtight lids or enclose in plastic wrap or aluminum foil. You want to use them within three to four days. In a survival scenario, it's going to be very difficult to avoid bacterial contamination unless you really monitor food preparation practices. In normal times, it's easier, but only if you pay attention to good food hygiene. This is Joe Altmendi, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health when good times are bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, please consider supporting our mission by getting some of the quality medical kits, individual supplies, and personal protection gear available at store.doomandbloom.net. Hey, that's all the time that we have for today. You've been listening to the Survival Medicine Podcast. For Amy Alden, I'm Joe Alden, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week.
Are you worried about how dangerous the world has become? In these days of terrorist attacks, natural disasters, or even a future collapse, you need to be medically prepared to keep your family safe. I'm Amy Alton, ARNP of store.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find an entire line of uniquely designed medical kits and supplies for when help is not on the way. For everything from individual first aid kits to the ultimate family bag, go to store.doomandbloom.net today. You'll be glad you did.